we have witnessed a lot of changes in our society over the past 30 or 40 years. If you were in the adult Sunday school class, we alluded to several significant changes. I want to begin this morning by uh, drawing your attention to two notable changes in our society in the past 30 or 40 years. The first is this, uh, the increase in religious diversity. You all know what I mean by that. Multiple religions, lots of them. Uh, When we here in Glen Rose hear the expression religious diversity, we tend to think in terms of Baptists, Methodists, Pentecostals, and the odd Episcopalian thrown in for good luck, right? But uh, I said that looking at Arthur. He knows why. Uh, We we recognize that the national scene is is very different. Uh, Plethora of religions out there today. A A couple of factors have contributed to this. Uh, Number one, embedded in our society is the belief in religious liberty, religious freedom. A man, a woman is free to pursue uh, the religion religion of his choosing without fear of persecution. And that has fostered an environment in which uh, many religions, multiple religions, have flourished. The second factor that has contributed to this increase in religious diversity is this, uh, the shift in immigration, right? We go back to the 1960s, up until the 1960s, Uh, The vast majority, this is a land of immigrants up until the 60s, the vast majority of those immigrants came from Europe. Uh, To a large extent, Protestant, of different stripes, but Protestant nevertheless. Uh, Europe no longer holds that distinction today. uh, Immigration, South America, uh, Africa, Asia, and so multiple religions. And in a climate of religious liberty, praise God, uh, the freedom to pursue religion without fear of persecution. And so in the 60s, if uh, my memory serves me correctly, in the 60s, I think it was close to 90%, mid-80s perhaps, of Americans uh, identified themselves as Protestant. Uh, Today, that number has just fallen below 50%, identify themselves as Protestant. And so this increase, marked increase in religious diversity... The second significant change, notable change, is this, that within Protestantism itself, among Protestants, there has been a marked, in the last 40, 50 years, what I think we can call a a marked, significant, theological drift. And so if we were to visit most Protestant, most Protestant congregations today, we would discover that that most, I, I don't think that's an exaggeration, I really believe this, most are a-theological, a-confessional, and a-historical, meaning they have no regard for any of these things. They're not actively militant against those three things. They simply have no time for theology. They have little interest in history. And confessions, they have no idea what they are. And that is the state. That is the reality of the religious landscape in our society today. An increase, marked increase in religious diversity and a marked theological shift, even among those who historically have identified themselves as Protestants. Why am I telling you that? For the following reason. Those two factors have led, have resulted in competing portraits of Jesus. Do you get that? Competing, very different portraits, portrayals of Jesus. And so within Judaism, for example, Jesus isn't the Son of God. 
Uh, some would identify Jesus as a false prophet, an imposter. Some Jews would identify Jesus as a, as a misunderstood prophet or a confused prophet, but most certainly he was not the Son of God. Uh, within Islam, uh, Jesus is uh, the Son of God, but they define that differently, very differently. He was uh, virgin-born. He did perform miracles, but he did not die upon a cross. He ascended without dying. And basically, Jesus was the last in that long line of Israelite prophets, and he prepared the way for the coming of Muhammad. Within Hinduism, Buddhism, these Eastern religions, Jesus isn't the Son of God. Uh, Jesus is uh, essentially an enlightened soul, a pathway, a doorway beyond the material realm into the spiritual uh, by whom we come to self-fulfillment and self-realization and recognize ultimately that we are all divine. Within Protestant liberalism, uh, Jesus isn't the Son of God. Jesus was an exceptional human being, a man who lived by a, a far higher ideal, a man who championed the poor and the oppressed, who left us with a number of interesting truisms, and a man who on some level is to be emulated and esteemed. Within popular evangelicalism, Jesus is the Son of God, in creed anyway, but to a large extent, he is not the Son of God in practice. In other words, his identity for many within what we would call popular evangelicalism, the identity of the Lord Jesus is somewhat irrelevant, because all they're looking for is a coach. All they're looking for is a counselor. All they are seeking is someone whose greatest desire and greatest longing is their own personal peace, affluence, and happiness. Within what I identify as historical, reformed evangelicalism, those who hold to the early ecumenical confessions of the church, uh, Jesus is the Son of God, fully God, fully man, creator and judge, sustainer and creator, our Redeemer. And so we have these competing portraits of Jesus in our society today. There are one of two possible ways of explaining these competing portraits. Uh, Some would lead us to believe that these competing portraits of Jesus actually testify to the inaccessibility of truth. So in other words, these varying views of Jesus, these competing, conflicting portraits of Jesus... Well, it actually doesn't matter because, you know, in the final analysis, we can't know the truth anyway. There isn't really any absolute truth. What is true for you isn't true for him. What is true for him isn't true for her. What is true for her is not true for me. It's all true. It doesn't matter. You believe what you believe. And as long as you hold it in sincerity, that's okay. And so some, a large segment of our society would lead us to believe, these are voices we hear, lead us to believe that these competing portraits of Jesus actually testify or confirmation of the inaccessibility of truth. We can't know truth anyway. Believe whatever you want. But there is a second possibility. It is this. These competing portraits of Jesus actually testify to man's rejection of the truth. Did you catch that? These competing portraits of Jesus actually testify to man's rejection of the truth. By that I simply mean, man, by nature, has no natural appetite for the biblical Jesus. Man, by nature, has no natural affection for the biblical Jesus. 
And so man will invent an alternative with which he is comfortable. That does not testify to the inaccessibility of truth. It testifies to man's sinfulness and his utter rejection of the truth. We see this confirmed when we turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Now, we have for some time been making our way through what is called Passion Week. Seven days, a week which culminates in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have considered the events of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And we've been looking now for a few Sundays at the events which occur on Friday. There are seven scenes. These scenes begin in chapter 14, verse 17. Scene number one. It takes place in the upper room. Move down to verse 26, same chapter. Scene number two takes place upon the Mount of Olives. Move further down, verse 32, third scene. It takes place where? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 53, the fourth scene. It takes place in the courtyard of the high priest. Fifth scene brings us into chapter 15, the very first verse. Where are we now? We are in the governor's palace, Pilate's palace. Verse 21 of chapter 15, the sixth scene, we're at the cross. Uh, We behold Golgotha, the place of the skull. And then the seventh, final, last scene begins in verse 42 of chapter 15. It takes us to the grave. We've considered the first three scenes. The fourth scene, put it over here, the high priest's courtyard, And the fifth scene, the governor's palace, they relate to us what? Jesus' trial. And so the trial obviously consists of two parts. The first part is of a religious nature. It takes place before the Jews. The issue is this. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The second part of the trial takes place before the Romans. It is political in nature. Are you the king of the Jews? And so today we are looking at the fourth scene. That is the first part of his trial, religious in nature, before the Jews. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at the second part of this trial before the Romans, political in nature. So with all of that before us, the context clear, we dive in. And we begin reading in verse 53 of Mark 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. 
And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let me give you the outline we're going to follow. Very, very simple. Firstly, we're going to notice... Astounding meekness. Astounding, mind-boggling meekness from verse 53 to the middle of verse 61. And then secondly, we are going to notice astounding majesty from the middle of verse 61 to the end of verse 62. And then a third astounding thing, astounding enmity, hatred in verses 63 through 65. That's our outline. Follow me now as we return to the first astounding meekness as it unfolds for us, as, as Mark pens it, describes it for us, beginning in verse 53 through to verse the middle, more or less, of verse 61. What we have here is Jesus arrested. Judas has betrayed him with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Jewish council, that is the Jewish religious authorities, they have sent out this motley crew, these Roman soldiers, to arrest Jesus as an insurrectionist, as a rebel. He is now brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, in his courtyard, in his personal residence. This is what the Jewish religious authorities have been longing for, yearning for, plotting and planning for years. Turn back with me still in Mark's gospel account, all the way back to chapter 3. Here we're back in the region of Galilee. And here we have the Lord Jesus as he embarks initially on his ministry of healing and preaching. And look at what we read of in chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. It's the Sabbath. Jesus dares to heal the man on the Sabbath in violation of the Jewish religious authorities' oral tradition. In other words, he is challenging, dismissing, usurping their authority. What is their response? Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Now come back all the way to chapter 11. This is the outset of Passion Week. And Jesus has cleansed the temple. Again, he has challenged their authority. And look at what we read of in chapter 11, verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They enter into that agreement, that plot with Judas, Judas agrees to betray him in quiet, in secret, when the crowd is not present. He betrays him with that kiss, and now the council has precisely what they have wanted all this time. They have Jesus in front of them on trial. 
I want you to notice four things about this trial. Why it is a miscarriage injustice. When does it take place? It takes place during the night. That is a violation of the law. According to the law, the law which this council is supposed to uphold, a trial must take place during the day. Secondly, where does this trial take place? A residence, the high priest's residence. That is a violation of the law, the law which they are supposed to uphold and defend and teach. Uh, According to the law, trials are to take place in the confines of the temple, publicly, not in someone's personal residence. Thirdly, how does this trial take place? Notice a few things. First of all, it's based on false testimony, false testimony which is actually elicited by the council. Secondly, notice, they actually ask the Lord Jesus, the accused, to incriminate himself. Notice thirdly, a day does not pass between judging and sentencing. According to the law, they must wait a day before, before uh, giving a guilty verdict and giving a sentence. They, 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 they cannot rely on false testimony. As a matter of fact, those who bear false testimony are, 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 are supposed to be subjected to the, to, the, to the fine which they were seeking against the, the wrongly accused. And not only that, they have asked the Lord Jesus to incriminate himself, again, in direct violation of the law. The fourth thing I want you to notice is this. Why? Why does this trial take place? Look at what we read in verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. In other words, this is not a trial called for the purpose of weighing the evidence. This is a trial called for the purpose of finding some accusation which they can levy against him in order to execute him. Now notice, in the face of this injustice, look at how the Lord Jesus responds, beginning in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 61, key. But he remained silent and made no answer. Here we have the fulfillment of what we read in Isaiah 53, verse 7. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. Why not? His silence testifies to two truths. Firstly, His silence testifies to the injustice and illegitimacy of this trial. He will not answer because he does not recognize its legitimacy. Secondly, his silence, and far more importantly, his silence testifies to his submission to his Father's will. He has already wrestled in the garden. He has already poured out his soul to his father in the garden. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. He has emerged from the garden. And he has embraced the cross. And we see the fulfillment of what was written years later. That it was for the joy that was set before him. That he willingly endured the cross, despising the shame. What joy, the glory of God in the salvation of his people. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led 
to the slaughter. Now, this is astounding meekness. When we hear the word meekness, maybe you wrestled with this a little bit in the context of the care groups. A couple of Wednesdays ago, we were looking at chapter 3, wasn't it? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Maybe you wrestled with this because it's a word which carries a lot of baggage in our day and age and carries some complexities. Uh, Meekness is not spineless compliance. Did you get that? Meekness is not spineless compliance. There are occasions when we see the Lord Jesus, his zeal burning, his zeal heightened, when it comes to cleansing the temple, when it comes to rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, we see such zeal, fire. And in our kind of thinking, in our way of thinking, we we believe that's incompatible with meekness because we misdefine meekness. Meekness is not spineless compliance. Meekness is simply this, an unwillingness to assert ourselves and unwillingness to defend ourselves for our own sake. That's what we see the Lord Jesus doing here. The Lord Jesus manifests astounding meekness. He never asserts himself, and he never defends himself for his own sake. Now let me explain quickly to you why that is so significant for us. The first is this. His astounding meekness encourages us to come to him. Doesn't it? It's what he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. I am meek and lowly of heart. Who are the heavy laden? In the context of Matthew 11, who are those who labor? They are those who are burdened with the sense of their sin. They are the poor in spirit. They are those who, uh, who understand their, their, their spiritual poverty, their unholiness in the light of God's holiness, uh, their sinfulness in the face of God's perfection. And this cultivates in them such poverty of spirit. They, 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 they are racked with guilt for their sin. And they bear the burden that is the weight of their sin. And Jesus utters this wonderful, most precious invitation to them. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. It's forgiveness. And notice the motive he gives. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. Friend, I... I, I pray your misconception of Jesus is not an impediment to you coming to him. Did you get that? It was a bit of a mouthful. I pray that your misconception of Jesus is not an impediment to you coming to him. There is only one impediment to coming to Jesus. Do you know what it is? It's only one. Pride. Pride is the only thing that keeps people from the Lord Jesus. But when we are broken of our pride, When we understand that nothing in our hand, as that great hymn declares it, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to his cross we cling. Oh, what a a wonderful assurance. What a wonderful invitation. What a wonderful promise. 
that when we bear the load of our sin and we come to him in faith and repentance, he will not slam the door in our faces, but he invites us to take his yoke upon us, learn from him, remembering that he is gentle and lowly of heart. Second reason is astounding meekness should encourage us. It should encourage us to follow after him. I'm going to draw your attention to Peter's words. No need to turn there. I'm just going to read it, but pay close attention to what he says. 1 Peter chapter 2. Christ also suffered for you. And incidentally, remember that Peter is present here in Mark 14. He's in the courtyard. He sees all of this happen. He hears the false accusations. He knows that this is a kangaroo court. He knows that this is a mistrial. This is a miscarriage of justice. He knows they're simply out to kill him. And he, and he, he notes Christ's silence. He was there. And then he writes in 1 Peter, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, when we come to Christ in poverty of spirit, the result is a spiritual mourning for sin, isn't it? And what flows from this spiritual mourning of sin is meekness, whereby we entrust ourselves, we abandon our rights, and we trust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Martin Lloyd-Jones penned decades ago, there's only one thing that crushes me to the ground. This is great. There is only one thing that crushes me to the ground. There is only one thing that humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and to contemplate the cross. Let me make reference again to our study of the Beatitudes in our care groups. I fear, that's a slight fear, I fear this, that we can very easily legalize the Beatitudes. What do I mean by that? We we, we can very easily turn them into law. That we read these Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, that doesn't sound like me. Give me a list of 27 things I need to do to be more like that. If that's your approach to the Beatitudes, you've misunderstood it. If that is our approach to what the Lord Jesus is teaching there, we have legalized them. The Beatitudes are not law. The Beatitudes are not commands. The Beatitudes simply describe the man, the woman, who has spent some time at the foot of the cross. That's all it is. The Beatitudes describe that individual lurking in the shadows of the Garden of Gethsemane who sees Jesus Christ in his bloody sweat and agony as he's overcome with horror, sheer horror, at the prospect of God imputing to him our sin and as he feels, has this inner sense of his father's displeasure. And then beholding him hanging upon Calvary's cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we spend time in the garden, the shadows, and we spend time at the foot of the cross, the result is what is poverty in spirit. We just, we, as I said last week, we tear up our spiritual resume and we grieve and mourn our godlessness 
And we approach him in meekness, entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. And we have an insatiable appetite, starving, hungering for righteousness. And where do we find it? We find it in Jesus alone. That is, we abandon our self-righteousness. We find that righteousness which God requires of us in Jesus Christ. And as we become one with him through faith, God imputes, attributes that perfect righteousness and obedience to us. And that is the rock upon which we stand. And as we behold his meekness, it encourages us to follow his example. That such meekness is the key to life. Not only is it the door to salvation, it is the key to life. I wish I had more time to develop this. I'm going to give you just a couple of sentences here. Try to take a snapshot. And you, you develop this later. Meekness is not only the door, the pathway to salvation, but meekness is the starting point for obeying every command. Do you have a problem obeying? I'll tell you why. It's because you lack meekness. Meekness is the starting point for mortifying every sin. The starting point for healing every marriage. The starting point for forgiving every offense. The starting point for mending every relationship. Resolving every conflict, enduring every trial, and surrendering every right. If I have a problem doing any of those things, I can pinpoint the exact precise cause. It is because I lack meekness, and I need to run back to the cross, and I need to behold his astounding meekness, like a lamb led to slaughter. He opened not his mouth. It is firstly an encouragement to come to him for salvation. And it is secondly an encouragement to follow after him, his example. Now moving on, secondly, we see not only his astounding meekness, but his astounding majesty. Middle of verse 61, the high priest has already asked him a question. Have you no answer to make? He remains silent. Why? He's testifying to those two realities. One, I do not recognize the legitimacy of this trial. Two, I am entrusting to myself to my father who, ju- who, 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 who judges justly. He's testifying to his submission to his father. But the high priest asks him again. He presses him in the middle of verse 61. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Blessed. The Jews hesitated when it came to using God's name. They didn't want to be guilty or accused of using God's name in vain, so they would substitute other words. So what he's really saying is, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? What do we find in verse 62? Suddenly Jesus speaks. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, he is silent up until this point, astounding meekness. Why? He testifies to the fact that he does not acknowledge the legitimacy of the trial. And far more important, he testifies to his submission to his father's will. He refuses to defend himself. He refuses to counterattack. He refuses to strike out. Astounding meekness. Why does he speak now? He is not defending himself. He is not asserting himself. At this point, he is clarifying. The high priest has asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And so this is not a lack of meekness all of a sudden. 
Jesus is not, is not trying to, to, to assert his own rights, but for the sake of clarification, he answers. Why? Because he knows it is a loaded question. He knows what lies behind the question. You see, this council, they're looking to kill him. They want to execute him. In order to do so, you see, they can't put him to death themselves. In order to do so, they're going to have to present him to Pilate, present him before the Roman authorities, because the Romans have to carry out the execution. So what are they going to need in order to get a a sentence of execution? They need a legitimate accusation. What kind of accusation is going to hold water before the Romans? That this man is an insurrectionist. This man is a rebel. This man is a threat to the peace of the Roman Empire. He's a threat to Pilate. He's a threat to the emperor himself. And so that is what they are packaging here. That's why when they arrested him in the garden, they sent Roman soldiers. And Jesus says to him, look, for days now I've been teaching in the temple in broad daylight. Why didn't you arrest me then? Why do you come to me now in the dead of night with these soldiers to arrest me? Because they're portraying him in a certain light. He's dangerous. He's a threat, an insurrectionist. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? It's a loaded question. Jesus knows it. He'll have none of it. And he wants to make it clear that he is not some half-crazed, insurrectionist rebel hiding out in the desert seeking to overthrow the occupying Roman force. He makes it clear. He states, firstly, I am. Those two words in and of themselves would have sent shockwaves through this council. I am. You think of John 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am, I am. Now he brings two Old Testament texts together and they coalesce in verse 62. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The first Old Testament text is from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adam, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Second text is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. The clouds of heaven. It's the Shekinah glory. The clouds, remember, we've seen them before. Back in Mark chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration. Shekinah glory with the clouds of heaven. The glory of God. There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples... Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And so the Lord Jesus, by bringing together these two Old Testament texts, he is making it clear, he is acknowledging that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But not in the sense they intended. Not in the sense that they want to frame it and portray it before the Romans. No, he is the Son of God. He is the one invested with all authority. And he points clearly through these two texts to his exaltation. Four key steps to the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. The first is his resurrection. The second is his ascension to the right hand of God. The third is his present session, his present reign at the right hand of God until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And the fourth is his return, the restoration of all things, the culmination of all things, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I am the Messiah, he makes it clear. I am. Oh, they they must have shuddered when they heard those words. And in effect, what he is saying to them is this. A time is coming when I will return. 
I will return in the clouds of glory, the Shekinah glory, and I will return as judge. In effect, if I dare say it, he is saying this. Look, you and me, we're going to meet again. And it's going to be very, very different. Very different. I am. I am. It's a reference to his eternal deity and essence. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. These men in particular, the high priest himself and this council, they get a preview of that day 40 years from this moment. When Jesus comes in glory. And he destroys the entire city of Jerusalem, the temple itself, through that occupying force of the Romans. They get a preview of that final judgment. They get a close-up and personal preview of that coming day of, of judgment. And yet up until this point, this question, Jesus, he's, he's been somewhat secretive when it comes to his identity, hasn't it? Somewhat secretive throughout his entire ministry. Why is that? He knows this is a loaded question. This is a loaded issue. This This word Messiah, there's such misconception and misunderstanding rampant, commonplace among the Jews. And they don't understand that the Messiah will come as a suffering servant, and yes, as a reigning king. All they think of when they hear the word Messiah, they think in terms of political terms. They think in terms of some political power who's going to throw off the yoke of the Romans. And so throughout his entire ministry, he's trying to rearrange people's, people's thinking, people's perception. It's kind of like, not exactly, a few weeks ago, a different context, no one here, uh, someone asked me, are you a Baptist? What do you say? Depends on what you mean by the word. Uh, what kind of Baptist? What, what, define it. To simply say, I'm a Baptist, what am I agreeing to? What perceptions do you have of Baptist? What have you heard? Uh, what is your thinking? What do you think a Baptist believes or what a Baptist is? How do you answer that question until you define the term? That's the dilemma throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He, 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 he takes that ascription with some hesitation. He is secretive when it comes to claiming to be the Messiah. Why? Because to claim to be the Messiah would be to embrace their misunderstanding of who the Messiah is. Let's go all the way back. Let's take the time to do this. Let's take a little journey through Mark's gospel account. Go all the way back to chapter 1. The outset of his ministry. Back in Galilee. And look at what we read in chapter 1, verse 38. He said to them, he's speaking to some of his disciples. Chapter 1, verse 38, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. might surprise you to know Jesus did not come to heal, primarily. His healing were simply signs. Signs testifying to his identity and testifying to the fact that he had been anointed by the Spirit of God, testifying to the kingdom of God had now come. Jesus primarily came to preach. To teach. He makes it clear there in chapter 1, verse 38. Look now at chapter 3, verse 14. Here he appointed 12. These are the disciples. So Peter and Matthew and James and John. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. They're going to constitute the new Israel, the new kingdom, and he, he appoints them for this period of training when they will be with him, when he can rearrange their thinking. And so we have wonderful signs and teaching in the subsequent chapters. And now turn over to chapter 8, verse 29. It culminates in Peter's declaration and Jesus asks them, Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, verse 29 of Mark 8, You are 
the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. People don't understand. When they hear that word Messiah, when they hear that word Christ, anointed one, they immediately think in one way, but that's not who the Messiah is. And he's slowly rearranging their thinking. And then in verse 31, pivotal, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He's a suffering servant before he is a reigning king. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then in chapter 9, they climb the mount and there he is transfigured before them. There they behold the Shekinah glory and there they hear the Father declare, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so slowly he is massaging their thinking. He is removing their misperceptions and misconceptions as to who exactly the Messiah is. And he's revealing to them that he is the Son of God indeed. And he is revealing to them precisely why he has come, to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, now it's the, the moment is dawning. And he now stands trial before the Jews. He has spent his three years with his disciples. He has taught them everything he had to teach them. All the while he has avoided the, the misconceptions surrounding the Messiah But now at the moment of his trial, the moment he is about to go to the cross, standing before the Jewish high priest himself who asks him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He makes it clear, I am. And here's what I mean by it. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Friend, that too should encourage us. Just as his astounding meekness encourages us, his astounding majesty ought to encourage us quickly in two ways. Firstly, it encourages us to turn to Jesus. Friend, he's your judge. He is your judge. Uh, You will stand before him one day, and you will give an account. Not just, my friend, of the things you've done or failed to do. You will give an account for every word. Oof, that's terrifying. Every word. Even more frightening, you will give an account for every thought. Every thought. And do you know what the sentence will be, my friend? Condemn. Condemn. The fact that Jesus is our judge and he will judge in perfect righteousness and with perfect knowledge should encourage us to turn to him. Turn to him with this wonderful truth and reality ringing in our ears. That God, God does not accept me because I obey. Right? They're only, they're only, when it comes to people's thinking as to how, well, how am I saved? How, 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 how is it possible someday to stand in God's presence to be saved? There, there are only two schools of thought. There is over here, and this constitutes just about every religion on the face of the earth. Well, it will depend on, on me. That God will accept me because I, I obeyed or, or I did something or I performed a certain way. No, friend, here's the good news. God will accept me because Jesus obeyed. That's my hope. God is going to accept Stephen Yule because Jesus obeyed. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, submitted himself fully, triumphing where I have failed miserably. Get this phrase, please, friend. If you you, you wrestle with this, please get this phrase. Right now, at this very moment, God is satisfied with me. I take great joy in that. I revel in that. God is satisfied with me. You know why? He is satisfied with Jesus. 
You want to hear, you want to hear something even more startling? And you might object to this. God is actually quite pleased with me. Actually, he's very pleased with me. Do you know why? He is pleased with Jesus. I stand in God's presence before him in Christ. I do not come with a righteousness of my own. I do not come with my performance. I do not come with what I think are my successes and my failures. I do not come dependent on how I was feeling this morning when I got up. I come to God in Christ, clothed with his obedience, clothed with his righteousness, knowing he has paid the penalty for my sin in full at Calvary's cross. The fact that one day he will judge me is actually an encouragement to turn to him, turn to the judge now, and find myself clothed in his perfect righteousness. Secondly, this wonderful truth, astounding majesty, it encourages us to trust in Jesus. We live in confusing days. We live in alarming times discouraging in many ways, depressing in many other ways, as, as our, our society seems to be spiraling out of control. But my encouragement, my faith, does not rest in my society. It does not rest in my culture. It does not rest in my government. It rests in this wonderful truth that the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of power. And one day he is coming in the clouds of glory. That dissolves my fear of man. It moderates the pain of affliction. It cultivates the spirit of meekness. And friend, it ignites the heart of worship. But we see something thirdly in these verses. Following on astounding meekness, following on astounding majesty, we have astounding enmity. Verse 63, how does the high priest respond? Not an understatement. He goes ballistic. He tears his garments. A public show, a public display of utter contempt. He speaks to the other council members. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. He understands. He understands exactly, precisely what Jesus is saying. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now, if you can, come full circle with me. Because I began by drawing our attention to what we see today, competing portraits of Jesus. Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Protestant, liberal Protestantism, popular evangelicalism, all of these competing portraits of Jesus. Do these competing portraits of Jesus testify to the inaccessibility of truth? Or do these competing portraits of Jesus testify to man's rejection of the truth? I'm going to be blunt and as clear as I possibly can be. Friend, if you perceive Jesus or look to Jesus or think of Jesus in any way other than he claims to be in this text, you stand with the council. This is not a neutral thing. This is not a negotiable matter. He has revealed himself to be the Son of God. 
He has made it clear his deity, his divine nature. He has made it clear that he is the creator, the sustainer, and the judge. To reject Jesus as the Son of God, fully God, fully man, is to stand with the council. It is to reject the truth. Who is Jesus? Let me sum it up wonderfully for us as we, as we head into and anticipate the Lord's Supper. Let me sum it up in these words. Pay close, careful attention. His holiness is absolute. His sovereignty is complete. His righteousness is perfect. He is utterly unchangeable and totally faithful. His power is limitless. His knowledge is inexhaustible. His presence is boundless. He is wise beyond measure, loving beyond description, gracious beyond imagination. His mercy is high beyond calculation. And his wrath is deep beyond measure. His goodness is an ocean without shores. And his long-suffering is a sky without horizons. He is the great I am. Our Lord Jesus, we do worship you this day as our God. We identify in Scripture clearly who you reveal yourself to be and claim to be. The eternal word of God, the one by whom, for whom, and through whom all things were created. And we come to you and ascribe glory to you alone. And we do pray that as we celebrate together in communion, celebrate your death, your burial, your resurrection, our participation in those historical realities by virtue of our union with him, our hearts do well up in love. And we express our praise. We express our thanksgiving and ask you to receive it in your most holy and worthy name. Amen.